Hey, this is Jeff. Grab yourself a cup of coffee and join us at the table as we talk to another great leader about faith, church, and leadership. Welcome to the Leadership Drip. Jeff, welcome back to the Leadership Drip. Man, it's been uh, an exciting kind of season for us, and I don't think today's going to be any different. No, I've got my coffee ready. My pen is ready. My notes are ready. My, I'm all, I'm ready. I'm ready. In all reality, we do this more for ourselves, I think, than anyone else. Yeah. If nobody <laughs> listens, we enjoy it. We, we take lots of good notes, right? Yes, yes. And I think we're going to take lots of good notes today because we have an incredible leader with us. Uh, Doug Paul is, is on the show with us today. He's an innovation strategist who works with churches, denominations, networks, and socialpreneurs, which is a different word. It's an entrepreneur. It's socialpreneur. That's right. So socialpreneur. So yeah. welcome to the show, man. We're, we're so glad you're on. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Really appreciate it. It's good to be here. So uh, let's get first things first. Uh, last show, uh, I think we had Hannah Granowski on, yeah, uh, who's, yeah. A, who's a rock star, and she had the Chicago vibe vibing with you. Chicago. Right? We talked about pizza, but today, Doug is from my home state, no way. Virginia. He's, he's, he's holding it down in Richmond right now, which is a stone's throw from from where Dan and I grew up. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Good times. So, uh, so, so are you a spider? Is that the, is that the Richmond? That is, that is the University of Richmond. I am not a spider. I actually went to school in Chicago. Uh, oh! Um, so we can, we can mash both of those things together today. So I got to ask that. Where'd you go to school at? I went to Wheaton. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Cool. yeah. You yeah, love good Wheaton. School. Yeah, good people up there. I grew up... So I grew up north of the city in Waukegan, Zion. So, but I had a, a cousin who graduated from Wheaton. So I'm, I'm pretty familiar. Yes. Okay. So if you have some kind of Chicago experience, we might as well just ask the question. Well, now we've gone there. Favorite deep dish pizza, man, from, from Chicago. Where, where are you going? So there is what I started with in Chicago. And then I still do a lot of work up there. And so I'm probably there a couple times a year. I transition from, in college, I would have said Giordano's. Mm-hmm. And I am straight up Lou Malnati's now. Oh, okay. Okay. Were you thinking Gino's East? What were you thinking I was going to well, say? Well, I'm a, I'm a, I grew up on Giordano's as well. Um, I like Uno's, which is downtown. Mm-hmm. Um, Lou Malnati's is great. Hannah, who was on the show, talked about Pisano's, which is like this little known, I think it's like the brother of Lou Malnati or some crazy. Like they have one restaurant in Chicago and it's, she's like, it's the best, the best there is. She so. says the best deep dish pizza on it. There's got to be a pizza mafia. They're all connected somehow. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely yeah. Well, at least we got the important yeah, pieces. No. <laughs> we can shut it down now. Right. We definitely can finish the show now. So Yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> and finish the pizza. So let's be honest yeah. with that. Yeah, man. Hey, so uh, we love the conversations about innovation. I mean, Jeff and I on the show all the time, we talk about one of the greatest things about this generation is the entrepreneurial spirit that they bring to the local church context. So kind of help me understand a little bit sort of your approach, your ideas about this whole uh, socialpreneur sort of vision and mission and kind of give us some ideas about what that means. So I think Socialpreneurs is not far off from entrepreneurs, right? Uh, It's just a mashup of two words. And really what we're talking about are people who who are starting things and innovating on things that are either businesses that are are after the common good, um, or they are nonprofits that are doing that. Uh, And so it's really learning, the, the economic models that drive those are very different. 
And how you scale those things are very different than a traditional business might be, mm -hmm. whether you're in the tech sector or bricks and mortar. And so helping, helping people really navigate some of those challenges and those differences is, is really important. The difference between being a socialpreneur and an entrepreneur actually, there's overlap, but there's some really big differences. Very yeah. cool. What, so what would those differences be for those that, that are not familiar with socialpreneur? So typically speaking, like a socialpreneur is going to have different metrics that govern their success. You know, a business is going to have, for the most part, one single metric. What was our revenue? Yeah. And what was our increase of revenue year over year? For a socialpreneur, they need to know what their revenue is and they need to have revenue projections and things like that. But at the end of the day, they're trying, they have a different metric for what are we trying to change? And so if it's, we've got a tutoring program, how many kids are we tutoring? And what is the degree of grade difference that we've made up because they were in our tutoring program, for instance? If it is, look, we wanna do microloans and we wanna do it in Sub-Saharan Africa, how many loans are we doing? What are those loans doing? Are the, are the businesses that they're starting, are they sustainable? These are, these are different things than, you know, how much money am I making as the CEO or, or whatever it might be? How many people are on the team? All important things, but they're just different metrics for success. Yeah, so I think, I think um, as we kind of talk about this generation and, and the entrepreneurial spirit that they bring to the church, I think a lot of them um, want to do things. They want to go out and do stuff, change the world, right. but they don't necessarily have the systems, the experiences or the knowledge quite yet to, to know how to do that in some kind of systematic formalized um, way that creates sustainability. Right. So uh, what are some things that, that you can provide or that, that you would say would help a young leader or, or someone who's wanting to go out and, create a business or start an Instagram business or social media, whatever, uh, what are some ways that they can, they can begin to put some actual feet to the, to the dream? You know what I'm saying? I'll tell you what first came to my mind because your, your audience is primarily young leaders. And so I am a, I'm a huge LeBron James fan. Okay. Um, and I will go ahead and say on the record that he's the best basketball player who has ever lived. Um, better than MJ. I don't care. No one, you know, here's coming at you. And I, I think the, um, I was listening to a podcast last night with Frank Bogle because they just, they just won recently the, yeah. uh, the, the NBA finals. And the thing that Frank Vogel did, uh, he was a, a dude. I don't know if you can hear like the, uh, there's a helicopter that's flying right overhead. No. Well, that's good. Sorry, I'm, I'm so easily distracted by the airport in the distance. <laughs> he was a uh, tier three coach uh, who was, he might've been CAA and he dreamed of learning to, uh, learning to coach under Rick Pitino. And so what he did is he sent more than a thousand letters oh my goodness. to Rick Pitino and was like, give me any job you can. You don't have to pay me, just let me do it. And he, all he got back was form letters. And so he found out that Rick Pitino was holding one of these basketball camps. So he goes to the basketball camp and quote, accidentally trips into him. And it's like, Hey, you, you may not remember me. Um, and he's like, Oh yeah, of course I remember you. And then he says, if you're ever in town, stop by. We love to, we love to see what's going on with you. The next day he moved to Kentucky to, to learn how to coach under Rick Pitino. And he took an unpaid internship. Um, and, and the reason that he did that is he was, he was saying like, if I wanted to break into the business, I wanted to learn from the best. 
And I knew that early on in my career, it wasn't about how much money I made. It was about what I could learn and the connections that I could make. Mm-hmm. And I think that is the best advice that I can give right now for young leaders. Right now, millennials, the oldest millennial is, is just turning 40 years old. That means that primarily there is a group of people that for the better part of 15 years have been starting things. And they have a skill set that did not exist 20 years ago right? because of the advent of mobile digital technology. There are things that they know how to do that the generation before them does not know how to do. And I'm not saying they perfected it, but they know how to do some things. And there are lots of great examples of socialpreneurs who, are do- who have built really scalable, amazing businesses and nonprofits. Find your favorite one, take a year or two, go learn from them, figure out how to make it work financially. You will not regret it. Yeah. You'll, mm. you'll get the connections, you'll get the learning, build from there. I, that's man. Well, I, I just took some notes and um, I might be asking some people for some internships. <laughs> you know, you can take a year. I You're okay. A year. I, I, I got to take a gap year, right? Gap yeah, year. You're in college. Age. I mean, I, mean, I can take a gap year. So how does this overlay with, with the church and church culture then? I mean, I think we're seeing a lot of people who want to make a difference. Um, we've had some on the show who are, are doing things outside the context of with not outside the context of local church, but, it's, it's sort of a parachurch ministry or parachurch thing, especially with social media um, and, and sort of launching from there. How does this idea of being a socialpreneur kind of line up with local church then? There is, I think one of the things that you see increasingly true culturally from millennials and from like Gen Z is they are not going to be, they're, they're not going to be segmenting their life. Like this is my church life. This is my home life. This is my work life. It's just life. Mm-hmm. And so it's not, it's not thinking about like, are you in ministry or not? It's, I, I, I'm just, I am what I am. And I am about what it is that God is calling me to. And there are finances involved with that. And so whether or not that I work 10 hours a week for a local church or full-time for a local church. And for the last 20 years, I've, I've scaled up and down between working full-time for a local church and working five hours a week for a local church and everything in between. And it's the flexibility that has allowed me to do that w- with some of the things that I'm doing. And it, it's really more about chasing calling and believing that like there, there are economics involved in that. But my, my job is to find that spiritual family locally that God has called me to help lead. And then believing that like with, with the things that God has put in front of me, the economics, we're going to figure that out. Hmm. So uh, let's kind of let's kind of dig just a, in a little bit of a different direction here because I, I think we're into this conversation and I like where it's going, but because I think all this is leading to some of the content that you've already created and, and developed and and that you actually use on a regular basis. So I think and you I think you would probably agree with this that many of the sacred cows that we have in ministry and local church and religion and faith, especially Christianity many of those sacred cows actually started off as scandalous pigs, right? So I think, you know, you tell the story from your website about the scandal of Sunday school, which I love, you know, obviously being from uh, the Christian education world and understanding that whole dynamic. So uh, what it is about the scandal of Sunday school that is sort of the framework of the story that you're building from. So kind of walk us through that a little bit. 
there, there are just very few people that know how Sunday school started and what it used to be. And uh, Robert Rakes, I think this was, it was the late 1700s. One day he just, on Sunday, he saw there was uh, half a dozen kids who were covered in mud. They were fighting, they were swearing, they were gambling, and they were seven years old. And he's like, what is happening here? What, like, what's going on? And he has this conversation with his friend and he, he was from an upper middle class family. And what had never occurred to him was that if you were, if you were not wealthy, at least like the top 10%, that meant that at the age of seven, you were going to work at least 90 hours a week in a factory and you got one day off and it was Sunday. And then as it is now, the sort of the one way out of poverty was education. But the problem is if you're working all the time, you ain't going to learn to read and you're not going to learn math and you're not going to learn anything else. And so that's where Sunday school was simply for one day from 8 a.m. to 5.30 at night with a worship service somewhere in the middle and we will serve you breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You're going to learn the basics of education. And so Sunday school was a way of bringing two things together that typically in, in our Western experience right now don't normally go together. The genius for Sunday school was that they used the Bible to teach kids how to read. And so what they brought together was justice and evangelism. They came together. These things that oftentimes seem like they're disparate, that they don't belong, Rakes was able to bring together. And the good thing that happened out of that, in 50 years, 2 million kids were in Sunday school mm. learning to read. Not, not Sunday school like adult education. I mean Sunday school like 8 a.m. to 5.30, learning how to read, getting out of poverty. The good news was on top of that is they started to pass education reform which is great. You know, like it's great that kids aren't going to be working 90 hours a week when you're seven. Right. Yeah. But, the, but what that did was the world changed and it shifted and it meant that kids were now in school, but poverty was still an issue and spiritual poverty was still an issue because they didn't know Jesus. And what Sunday school did was rather than like going back to the original mission of why it started, which was still a need, the thing that they did is they pivoted in the wrong direction which is here's what we're going to do. We are going to make Sunday school adult education that happens for already Christians. Now, I'm not saying adult education for already Christians is bad, but the mission, the need was still there and they went a different direction and nothing replaced it. And mm -hmm. so what we have now, the thing that we know as Sunday school is this fossilized, hollowed out thing that, that is really resonant from the 1870s. That is what, 150 years ago? Yeah. Because a group of people, in some ways, might have made a different decision. And yeah. I think we are faced, here's the, here's the moral of the story. I think we're faced with this decision all the time. Right. Right. So as an innovation strategist and a believer, um, why is it that the church seems to get stuck so often with a lack of innovation? Are we get, I mean, you mentioned Sunday school. There are churches in, in our community who are still doing Sunday school the way it was created in 1870, you know, as, a, as an adult education model. Um, why do we get stuck there? Why do we not be, why are we not innovative? Well, that's a, that's a whole can of worms. Um, <laughs> I don't mind. But let's, let's, well, let's uncork then. Uh, I think, the first one is there's something in the water of Christian leadership that makes us afraid of failure. Mm. And you cannot be, you cannot do innovation without failure, missteps and miscues along the way. It's just not possible. You mm. will never get it out 
It's never going to come out right straight out of the gate. And there is something in, I don't know what it is, but there is something in Christian leadership right now that is like, man, if I just can't fail, like what if like we cannot look in the mirror and think of ourselves as a failure. I think yeah, that's, I, I think that's a one. I think the second one is there is, um, we have, we have somehow equated innovation with danger. Mm. That innovation is dangerous. That somehow if we change something, we are on the verge of heresy. And that's real problematic because let's, let me tell you, our, uh, our 21st century church looks a lot different than the first century. And it's a good thing that it looks different. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that we're heretical. No, agreed. I mean, it's, I feel like, and I'm just going to go on record here. I feel like a rebel rouser sometimes. <laughs> like when I came to, to Lee, where we, where we record from as a, I came as a 21 year old transfer student. Um, had grown up in the church, had grown up in small churches, and then had a season in high school where we attended a, a seeker-sensitive Willow Creek style, which was very innovative, very different, um, and came back to my roots in Pentecostal sort of Church of God. Um, I always felt like the outsider or the black sheep going, why do we do it this way? Like always yeah. asking the question, why do we do it this way? Why do we do it this way? And I feel like nobody had a good answer other than we've always done it this way. And, and so I think that fear factor is, is incredible. Um, you know, so, so how do we overcome that? Like, and I know, so most pastors would say we don't change because so-and-so will leave or the tithe will go down or they'll fire me or they've got reasons for not changing. So why should we change? Because if the church doesn't change, it's going to die. Yeah. Adapt or die. I mean, it's just, it's this, it really does boil down to that. And so we, and maybe we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit later as we talk about changes that are happening in culture and the way that those things are seeping into, like those, those macro effects are gonna shake the church. But if we, we, are, we are in a fight for our survival, like many, 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 many churches are in a fight for like, you aren't going to exist in five years if you don't change. Right. And so when I say adapt or die, this isn't hyperbolic. This isn't like, Oh, this is a soundbite that you give overstatements to podcasts. Yeah. This is like, you've got to change or you won't exist. Right. Yeah. And it, it's, it's funny. So if we look at this at a global perspective, right, there's innovation coming out of the ears in other parts of the country in terms Absolutely. of the local church, right? So the innovation is there, mm -hmm. but for whatever reason, the current status of our Western American church reality is that it's innovative stagnant, right? So it's, it's kind of clogged. One of the verses in the Bible that has been absolutely wrecking me lately is from the Great Commission, you know, Matthew chapter 28. And before you ever get to the, the famous part where it says, therefore go now, right? The disciples come, they meet Jesus. The Bible says they worship him. They acknowledge who he is. They understand who Jesus is. But then it says this three-word little phrase in there, that just blows my mind and I've been wrestling with it. It says, but some doubted, right? So failure is not the thing that will destroy us. Yeah. Take us out of the game. It's this idea of doubt. And I think what yeah. you're kind of hitting on is sort of this spiritual address that's kind of in that Matthew 28 passage where we're afraid to innovate because it equals danger, right? It could put ourselves, our families, our livelihoods or whatever at risk. I mean, there's those components. And then, 
the fear of being ridiculed, chastised, or labeled a failure, I think those two things that you kind of pointed out really echoed that verse in Scripture because the question wasn't if they, they doubted Jesus, they just worshiped him. Who, who, who or what did they doubt? Themselves. And I think that is a, such a problematic piece of our current faith reality in our Western American context is that we're afraid to fail and we're afraid of innovation because it's so risky. But is that not what God calls us to? I don't know. I mean, I, I think it is obviously, or I, I probably wouldn't be on here. having this <laughs> You wouldn't have wrote a book about it. You wouldn't have wrote the book. That's right. I, I would not have spent three years of my life writing this blasted thing. I think, I think, but I think you're so right. Cause everything that you just said that you're talking about are questions about identity, right? Yeah. All of them. And I think the challenge for us is, is actually recognizing for, for, for innovation, we are in order to move forward into uncertainty, which is what, in, like, a, that's a key part of innovation. We are going to have to like be secure enough as leaders to move forward into uncertainty. And the only way that I can be secure is if there is someone outside of me who is saying, you're my beloved, you're in, I love you. Nothing you could do is going to change that. And if that's uncertain, like, you're, you're in some trouble anyway. And yeah, I think yeah. the insecurity of leadership is, is such a big one. But I think I talk about this in the book. I call it the spiritual spiral of innovation. Going back to like that failure and identity question around what does it look like to follow Jesus? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it, it kind of goes like this. Like th- the first thing is like without failure, there's no innovation. Second is until I choose to die to self, I'll never regularly choose failure as a normal part of my life. And so the ultimate question is three, am I willing to choose to die to self? Yeah, that's, that's good. It always, like innovation, if you're talking about kingdom innovation with Jesus, requires Jesus. And you cannot, it's a spiritual process that cannot be done apart. I mean, he has this thing, apart from me, you can do nothing. And so often when we, when we think about life, leadership, and church, it's, it's like we got a call somewhere sometime and then we kind of take the baton or like, I got this God, we're good. It's like, no, I think uh, he wants to be there leading the whole way. Yeah. Yeah. You, you mentioned Doug a little bit ago, the, the adapt or die sort of scenario we stand in. Um, every church in maybe the world, but mo- mostly here in America, faced that crisis come March of this past year as COVID sort of swept in across the nation. Um, and, in, and they had to adapt. They're, they were without choice at that point. They, they regulations, the governments, the states um, restricted them or limited them or whatever happened, happened in those settings. What did you see as far as churches willing to adapt and those who refused to adapt? What were the outcomes of that? I think this is a nuanced answer. Because I think, I think most churches did adapt. Um, and by that, I mean, I mean, if you looked at the stats, it was like 97, 98% of churches went online. Mm-hmm. Uh, when before that, it was like way, 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 way lower. Yeah. But I think my, and this, this maybe goes back to uh, something, a comment that Robert was making earlier. I don't, I don't know that like they adapted in the right way. 
they did adapt, but what they didn't do, like what they did is they, they said this, we got to get our worship service online. So we're going to get our worship service online. Boom. It's online. It's as close to what we could do as possible from what we were doing. But I think the real innovation needed to be to ask a better and deeper question, which was like, why do we have worship services in the first place? Yeah. Start there and then say, okay, let, once we know the answer to that question, then we can start to build something that would be able to answer the why question online. And it should look actually quite different than just like, hey, we're just sticking up what was right up on that online thing again. And that's, I, I think they did adapt, but I think most people missed it. Uh, but but we, don't have a, we don't have a muscle memory for this. Like we're not used to like having to make major pivots like this. Yeah. Part of the reason for the book is to say, I think we're missing a major leadership tool. There's not muscle memory. So when we hit these critical points, we don't know what to do. Yeah. Wow. So then I think, I think based on, on that conversation, when we start talking about churches adapting and asking those deeper, more difficult questions, listen, as, as someone who obviously works at a Christian university has spent their entire educational experience in a seminary context. Uh, I'm obviously a huge fan of formal higher Christian education paradigms and platforms. I will say this though, as a, not as a critical statement, but as a, as a question, are we at seminaries kind of turning out cookie cutter type seminarians who, who only know how to grow, build, develop church realities based on what's already been done or are we pressing an innovative conversation innovative approach within the classroom i don't know the answer to that question i don't know if you have any kind of input to that so uh i don't know it's just a question i'm thinking about as we're talking about this what do you think the answer to your question is <laughs> well <laughs> at the risk of, of failure uh no i think i think i already know the answer to this question and i think we we both we, we all do know the answer to this question. We have to do a better job, not of just um, creating seminarians who know how to go out and, and teach great sermons and, and mm -hmm. perform, you know, excellent uh, worship services and those kinds of things. I think it's these, these pieces, Simon Sinek, the why question, right? Whoever yeah. else you want to throw in there. I think this needs to be added to the curricular structure of, how we actually train Christian leaders for tomorrow, asking them these, these deeper type questions that lead to higher level uh, impact and influence, not necessarily success. I mean, that's, that's a very loose kind of thing to describe, but, but this, this more influence and impact in the communities which we're called to serve, I think that can only come through those deeper questions. I don't know. Yeah, I agree. I, I don't have any issue with seminaries or, or higher education or, I, I invested money and time into right. seminaries and higher education yeah. and things like that. Yeah. I, I think my bigger question around asking different questions, better questions, deeper questions would be what are the skill sets that the leaders of the future need to have? Start there. Now let's reverse engineer how we get people there. Like one of my biggest critiques, and I'm not saying this is true of Lee. I want to be clear. Um, <laughs> But one of my biggest critiques on a macro non-Lee level is a seminarian can graduate and not have a clue how to make a disciple. Mm. 
let's go right back to what you were talking about with the Great Commission. What's yeah. the ground floor? Yeah. Be a disciple who can make disciples. How do, we, how do we have people going into programs for three years and they don't have a clue how to make a disciple? That's bananagrams to me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so let's add that to the list. Okay. They should know how to do that. There are other things, but I think this is where it's, we gotta, there's a the thing that I talk about in the book is this thing called the curse of knowledge. It's the villain of the story. And it is the more expertise that you gain, the harder and harder it is for you to see other ways of doing things. And that's what seminaries do. It is literally teaching you how to do things in a world that no longer exists for many people. Like the 20th century doesn't exist anymore. The church that existed and did well in the 20th century can't, we are in a new world. So let's build yeah. new structures and paradigms and practices. And, and since we're on the um, changing the seminary world right now kind of ship, let, let's, let's just say all this because we know across the board, statistically, it doesn't matter what the institution or denomination, seminaries by and large in general, and majors that focus on ministry, pastoral ministry, uh, cross-cultural studies, mission, missiology, all of these things, all of them are faltering and failing in, in attendance, right? The enrollment for these programs is dropping like crazy. Now, what are the programs that are, that are picking up speed? Business, leadership, and why? Because they're having the conversations on innovation and doing things outside of the box, which is what even people who want to do pastoral ministry with Gen Z, especially coming up, that's how they want to do ministry. They want to be innovative. They want to live outside of the norm. They want to be their own sort of Instagram entity. If we can just get real stereotypical for a second, right? So I think, I think within our conversation in that context, these are things that as leaders of churches, of seminaries, of uh, consulting firms or whatever else we've got to pay attention to. So, yeah. I mean, I think Rob, you and I have talked about this a couple of times, Doug. Um, we meet a lot of students who say, um, well, ask their major. Oh, I'm a, a human development major, but I want to lead worship or I'm a business major, but I want to go into pastoring. They're no longer taking the traditional route of a, a, school of religion or seminary degree to get there because I think they see the handwriting on the wall, lack of innovation in the church. Um, and their culture changes. Like when we were an undergraduate 20 some years ago, culture wasn't changing that fast. Like Gen Z millennials, their culture changes every 18 months. It's something completely different. Um, so how do we as a church and, and maybe leaders who are now no longer as, as young, be able to adapt in a culture that's constantly changing. Yeah. The most, the most certain thing that we can say about the world is that it's going to change. It's true. That is literally the most certain thing. And so, I mean, this is, <laughs> I, I, I think it is, I, I, I probably already said this. I believe that innovation is a skill set. And so in the same way that preaching is a skill set, Vision casting is a skill set. Strategic planning is a skill set. Leading teams is a skill set. All these different things. These are they're, they're skill sets that leaders of the future need to have. Innovation is one of them. And so if you're going to lead into the future, not, not having the skill of innovation is the equivalent of a carpenter missing a hammer. Mm -hmm. It's not the only tool in your tool belt. Um, and, and quite frankly, if it's the only tool you have, then of course everything's going to look like a nail. But you need all of the tools 
on your tool belt, not just, not just the old world tools, though you probably still need a lot of those. And so I think that is the only way that we can, we can credibly talk about a, a world that we're living into that is changing that fast. Moving from it, it reinvented every 20 to 30 years, the rate of a generation to every 18 months. That's crazy fast. Yeah. There's no way anyone can keep up. So you, you've kind of got like two things that you've got to hold together. And this should probably be a very Lee University thing. One is you've got the skill set of innovation partnered with like Holy Spirit involvement. Like I can't chase everything. I can't do everything. I can't adapt to everything. But Lord, where are you at work? I want to join you in what you are already doing. That is the wisdom from heaven that we need to make these kind of critical decisions. And I think we need to reframe that conversation to understand that innovation is not outside of the spirit's leading. No, right. I mean, it's, it's not at all. It's called the new Testament. Exactly. Exactly. So I think we've done a, 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 a good job at doing disservice to the conversations of innovation and creativity, especially in the church, because how many people would say that we do know, or how many times have we had this conversation from a leadership perspective where a team member or people that you associate with say, well, I'm not creative. And so we, we kind of tackle this philosophical issue is innovation, something that you're born with, or is that something that you can learn? I'm in agreement with you. Innovation is a skill set and a muscle that we need to learn to develop. So what are some, for someone who's listening, who says, well, I'm not innovative, I'm not creative. What are some one, two, three steps that you can offer to help them to begin to exercise and find that muscle within their leadership. Yeah. I think there are, there are a couple of things that you can do if you want to learn it that, that I would start people. And I think this is important where you're like, you, you know, they've got that, that um, couch to 5k app. Yeah. Yes. I, this is the couch to 5k version. Um, we're not, I'm not going to send you out to run a, an innovation marathon tomorrow. Here's how you go from binging Netflix on your couch and eating potato chips to doing a 5k. The first thing I think that, that people need to do is they need to be able to find what are called bright spots. And I love that. Is it, that's the Heath brothers, right? It is, yes. From switch. Yes. That's how we got here. Like this is how we got yeah. the whole conversation. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It's, it's saying like, look, the, what most people normally do is they obsess over what's not working and there can be a lot that's not working. But what you actually, what's maybe more helpful is to say like, okay, where are things working? Because that's an indicator. If we have spiritual eyes to see it, that is an indicator of where the Holy Spirit is at work. And then find those things and, and just ask simply like, all right, Lord, how do we multiply this sucker? Like, what would it look like to see more of this? So when I was growing up, this is just crazy to me. The more I've, the more I've thought about it, the more I'm just like, man, this could have been something else. There is a dentist. And he, um, he went to, oh, it's a Nazarene school in Nashville. It's completely, Treveca? Treveca. He went to Treveca Nazarene University. And he was a dentist. And over the period of 35 years, he discipled 500 people. Wow. It was, I mean, like, and I don't mean like, I mean, he like deeply discipled these people. Um, you, I, I swear I could not go to Panera Bread or anywhere where he wasn't meeting with someone when he wasn't dentistring or whatever that word would be. But here is the thing. That, so he was the bright spot. Um, and all of these hundreds of people in this church were, had, had 
a certain level of spiritual maturity because of this random dentist. The missing piece, though, was that he, he did not teach them how to go and do this thing. Mm-hmm. And so that was the bright spot. So the, the first thing is like, look, find a bright spot in your life, but then ask, Lord, how can we multiply this? How can it be more than just the one thing? What if it could be 10 things or 20 things or 100 things? which isn't an arrogant question because Jesus tells us, hey, what does the kingdom look like? Well, it doesn't look like a one-to-one return. It looks like 10, 30, 60, 100-fold return. And so I think that's the first thing. There are things already working in your life right now. God is already at work. Just have eyes to see where he's doing. Find the bright spot, pour gasoline on it. The second thing is, I think sometimes we think bigger than we should when we're, when we're starting. So we think organizationally, or we think, I'm at this church or I'm at this leadership level or whatever. How do I innovate up there? I think it's actually learning to use the laboratory of your own life. So it starts at your own table. It starts with your own friend group. It starts with your own family and start small. Whatever it is that you want to try, try something small. See what it is that the Lord is doing there. And then again, you can multiply from there. But sometimes we th- we're thinking about it too. It's removed from us. When in fact, the the work that God wants to do through us almost always starts in us. Right. Mm -hmm. And that is a huge lesson. Like, don't start at scale. Start with you. Mm. And then the last thing is simply any kind of leadership that you might have right now. Just think about the next year and simply ask this question. How many experiments do I want to try? So is it three? Is it 10? It's probably, it probably shouldn't be 10. But, but pick, pick a certain number of experiments that you want to try, tell people what those experiments are, and then storytell as you go. Because what that's going to do is it's going to provide permission for other people to do the same thing. Because what you celebrate, people are going to repeat. And so if, yeah. you are, if you're experimenting, if you're storytelling, as you go, that is creating... A, a, a permission structure, an ecosystem, a culture where it is okay to fail. Because as you experiment, you will screw up. You will have mistakes. You will have missteps. And it's okay. So I think those are the first three that I, w- that I would start with. Yeah, that's, yeah, Rob and I are both scribbling notes. If you hear the sound of a pin on paper, that's us. <laughs> Just, uh... I'm thinking, free workshop. And it's this you keep talking about the fear of failure. My, my father-in-law is, I believe, 74. He, he doesn't call himself a retired pastor, but he's no longer in the pulpit full-time. We'll say that. And he looked at me about six months ago um, and was, was going to help another pastor. And he, this is what he said to me, Rob. He goes, I've got one more failure left in me. Mm. He, he just isn't afraid to fail. Yeah. Now he's a, he, he was a college football player and, and like, and he's an athlete at heart. So he's got sort of that drive to him, but, but at 74, we're still going, Hey, I've got one more, one more go round, one more failure left in me. He was going to give it a shot. Um, so I think that courage to step into it is a critical point you're talking about and, and recognizing the bright spots. We, it was one of the books I was reading when Rob and I started the whole conversation about um, the podcast. And we were looking for places of churches that were already reaching young adults and people who are making, being affected with that. And we said, listen, we got to start having conversations with these people. We launched into a podcast. Um, so, so I think that's incredible that we have to start finding those places um, 
So walk us down this idea of experiments, though. Um, what do you mean by by try, some experiments? Give us give us like give us some framework, maybe some for instances. If you're a leader or pastor, yeah. So most most leaders I know, no matter how young they are, will they have what um, Stephen Johnson calls half ideas and slow hunches. Mm. Um, and and so part of part of like the discipline or the skill set of innovation is learning how to cultivate those over time, like actually tracking them, write down what your half ideas and slow hunches are. But I, I, I will never forget the first staff that I was on at a church. I was 20, I don't know, 24. And of course I knew everything, everything there was to know, I knew it. <laughs> um, but there was a, um, the pastor who had been there for 20, 25 years, who was an incredibly gifted leader, incredible godly man. He, he verbalized, he was like, I've always thought that, and then he, he, he gave this um, very simple articulation of what a disciple making model could look like. And he was like, I don't know why we've never done this. I don't know why I've ever pushed for us to do this. And then he moved on. And he had a very clear idea in his mind that he wanted to try. And you could tell that he had been noodling it around in his mind for like 30 years. Yeah. And he never tried it. He has still never tried it. I know that for a fact. And it's like, okay, look, we're not talking about blowing up your church. We're not talking about scaling it for everyone. If you have this idea with six people, grab six people, go for six months, do your thing and see what happens. Like if every one of those six people know, like if you've got this thing in your heart about what it would look like to disciple people and it's going to look like X, Y, and Z, and it'll feel like this, go try it. Like, think about why you want to do it. Think about, like, what are the outcomes? How will I know if it has worked? Yeah. And then just keep iterating on it and keep tweaking, adapting, changing, and iterating as you go. Like, this is, this is in business and particularly in the tech industry. This is just 101. Like, yeah. you would never scale something without experimenting with it first. And they, they develop what they call, it's called the MVP, the Minimum Viable Product. So that's in the business world. Right. So what it is that, that I do as an innovation strategist is that I help people develop what I call the minimum viable process. Because, because what I do is more people-oriented and transformation-oriented with the people that I'm working with. It's not around products. It's around people. Mm -hmm. And so whether it's around discipleship or mission or socialpreneurship for, for seeking the common good, whatever it is, what's the smallest version of that thing with that costs the least amount of money and the least amount of time that you could just push out. That's a prototype. That's a beta and try it. See if it works. Yeah. We don't beta test well in the church. No, we, yeah, we, we are. We alpha test. Like we're going to we, go all in. We alpha test. Like we throw all the resources, <laughs> all the money, all the people and we pray over it. And if it don't succeed, then we miss the Lord. That's like, I feel like that's the, <laughs> like that's innovation in the church. If we get an idea, we're all in on the idea. And if it doesn't happen, then we miss the Lord on it. Yeah. And, and there's not a lot of, I love the story um, in, of, of, of the version Bible. If you're yes. familiar with that, like it's in the book. Oh, okay. Yeah. Like they, they, they had this whole like, like virtual reality platform called second life. That was just terrible. It was like, terrible. It was like, it was like, you were like this avatar in this thing and they knew it was terrible, which is great of them. But the, the failure of that led Groeschel and his team 
to go, hey, what else can we do? Let's have an app for the Bible, which is now the most downloaded app, I think, in the world. Yeah. Um, their risk of failure led to something great. We, we don't beta test well. We, we just kind of throw all of our eggs in the basket and end up with a dirty omelet. I mean, that's just how, <laughs> how it happens a lot of times. So, so help us, and maybe, maybe your voice will serve better than some of ours, help some of the leaders have permission to beta test some things like that they've been incubating. And Rob and I are, are, are just as bad as everybody else because we have a lot of whiteboard ideas and no strategy behind them. So step one of the idea, um, where do we go? You want to figure out the simplest version with the least amount of bells and whistles. It takes the least amount of time and people and effort as possible. Mm. So I'll, I'll think about it this way. I think this is the most helpful example. If you want to start a restaurant, the way to do that is not to go and lease a brick and mortar store. The way to do that is to find someone who just by sheer graciousness will let you use their space for one night on a Friday night that allows you to try out your recipes and see if anyone will come. And you don't have to pay anything. It's just figure out if that will work. If that works, add a second night in a month. And if that works, get a taco truck and do that. And like, and you're scaling up to finally, like this is the fully orbed thing, but it starts with very little commitment. Mm. And so I think we've got to have permission to just try things knowing that most things don't work. Like the, I mean, this is, I, I will always remember where I was when I read this one, this one little um, thing. There's this book called The Innovator's Dilemma, which is Steve Jobs said this was the most influential book in the way that he thought about business. It's by this guy named Clayton Christensen. He just passed away last year. And uh, he wrote in it that 90% um, of successful businesses have one thing in common. Now, Pause there. 80% of businesses fail. Right. So starting with like, just go ahead and remove 80% of them. Now we're talking about the 90% of the, the ones remaining. They all have one thing in common and it's this. They are using a different idea than the first idea they started with. Mm. And what that is speaking to is we are so accustomed to thinking that if I, the leader, had the idea, it must be right. Well, it's almost certainly not. Or the first idea or the one we're most excited about is right. What well, almost certainly isn't. And so it, the more we can embrace that and like, it's probably not going to work. Then we can say like, but if we can fail faster, we could succeed sooner. Hmm. That's like, I'm doing this to succeed. I am not doing this because I like failure. I want to succeed. I want to win. But I'm going to count the cost going into it. And the cost looks like failure. It's okay. I'm probably going to have the wrong idea to start with, but I will find it as I go. Man, I, uh, I've got so many questions. Uh, so, Fire away, okay. friend. Fire away. Well, I mean, we're, we're getting close to time, so I'm trying to be very mindful of that. But I think, I think what's important about what you're saying is, is that we absolutely need a more innovative not only local church expression, but a Christian faith expression, because we've talked about this many times on the show as well. 
the need for secular saints and what that looks like in the business world, in the, you know, whatever world, right? It, the education world doesn't matter, right? So we, there's a growing need for learning how to disciple, build secular saints, which is going to require a tremendous amount of innovation and adjustment on so many different levels and platforms. Okay, so that, that piece is, is there. So as a innovation strategist, based on what you have seen or hearing, have kind of deciphered in your conversations and, and expertise, where is the church going to be in this digital sort of era, especially post-COVID with all these churches now beginning to see, well, the Facebook is not of the devil, right? I mean, so you can actually do good work through, through these kinds of mediums, right? So what's, what's next for the local church? What should we be paying attention to? I think with, with digital technology, the church is going to have to decide, is technology a means or is it an end? Mm. And I do worry that many churches are thinking that it's the end and not the means to an end. Yeah. Um, you know, we've talked before already how if you're 40 or younger, you don't think, you don't segment your life. It's not like this is my digital life. And this is my real life. And this is my work world. And this is my church world. I just knocked over a lamp as I'm wildly gesturing on a podcast, which you cannot see. Um, it's just one life. We have, we have one life that we're living and that, that digital life is part of it, but it isn't it, at least the whole thing. And so we need to really be thinking about like, how does technology help people take their next best step to the fullest expression of what life in Christ looks like, which is not your digital life, but all of your life, which includes digital. And watching how some, without naming any names, um, watching how some people are thinking through this is concerning. Um, that somehow you could be an authentic Christian spiritual family completely online. And I don't think that is true. I think that can be a stepping stone towards getting you towards that. And that stepping stone could take years. And I'm okay with that. But I'm concerned about trajectory. And I think just for, for people who are really interested in this conversation, um, Jay Cranda, who is the um, online pastor or digital pastor or something for Saddleback, Jay his is thinking a, on this, this is excellent. Jay is a good friend of mine. And I was, Great. On, I was on staff with him at Saddleback, so I know him very well. Yeah, and I advocate for Jay, Jay Cranda. Yeah, I love the way they are thinking about this and how they are putting stepping stones to getting people to a fully orbed life in Christ within community that includes digital, but is not only restrained by it. Yeah. Yeah. We had a we had Banning Lipster on the show from Jesus Culture, I think it was Banning, who said, online is a great front door, but it's a terrible space to live in. Yes, it's great. It's yeah. a great little... I mean, online is the new front door. It's not your worship service. Yeah, yeah reflecting back to my, my father-in-law, he, when he started churches, he said, you'd find a building, you'd find someone who could lead the singing, and you'd put a sign up, and people would come. And, and now I'd explain to him, I said, so the sign now is Facebook or Instagram or Twitter. That's your sign out in front of the building, because that's the first place they're going to see you long before they see the sign outside the building. Um, so, so then how do we hold intention, which is probably the best word, the, this digital space and, and the, the in-person, in-real-life space to be most effective? It's, it's what do, and this is one of the questions that 
it's, it's exactly the right question. And it's sort of what has bothered me about how churches have handled the pivot towards online worship services. It's asking this, what can online do better than in-person? And what can in-person do better than online? And owning that and not pretending like it's all the same. It's not like there are some things that Zoom does better, genuinely better. But there are a lot of things that Zoom just cannot do. And there's no amount of like digital technology that's going to get over that particular thing. I think we have to really study what those things are and build and design experiences around what those things are and then ask, then how do they fit together? Again, I'm wildly gesturing. Uh Um, I've got to move this lamp. (laughs) I can feel the gestures. It's okay. Yeah, yeah. I'm like very energetic over here. You know, I talk at least a little for a living because I'm like a wild gesticulator over here. (laughs) We are too. We are too. Um, So, so yeah, like in in my mind, it's just swirling with thoughts. Like, um, so, so how do we navigate that though? Like, I mean, so like, it feels like Doug, that, that the church was the, the other 70%. I don't know if that's an accurate number or not. Make it up but the other 70% that wasn't online got thrown online. Like they had to, they, in a week's time, they made that move without really having time to, to sit and think through it. Um, so if I'm a, if I'm a pastor who moved online and now I'm moving back to the, the in-person, but we still have an online setting, what's maybe the three questions I should ask myself, two or three questions I should ask myself in regard to keeping the online space? What, what does, um, what did people like about being online that they didn't like about being in person? That's one question that I would ask. Um, second question is, is probably more of a missional question, which is how can we use our online space to reach people who under no circumstances would come on a Sunday morning or whenever it is that you're yes. doing it. And then I think a third one is, how much of our budget do we want to allocate to this? Right. Hmm. That's a good question. Because that determines value. It does. Right. Yeah. So, which is yeah. a whole different youth ministry conversation. Right? So, like, oh, look at that. You know what I'm saying? So, Are we picking a scab here? Oh, yeah. No, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. I'm we just may saying. have served some time in youth we ministry. May, <laughs> may <have served> <laughs> no, but hey, hey, we've got, we're, we're so out of time, bro. And I would love to keep this conversation going. In fact, we, we might do it in other capacities, but, um, we have one final question we want to ask, and it's a question we ask everyone on the show. And uh, so feel free, all liberty to answer this any way, shape, or form that you want to. But um, what is one lesson you learned in college that actually didn't take place in the classroom? Uh, Talent is meaningless. And no amount of talent can compensate for lack of discipline and hard work. Hmm. That's like that's a great answer. Yeah, a great answer. I uh, I I mean the short story around how I learned that is for whatever stupid reason I decided that I was gonna join this company called Southwestern during the summer and I was gonna sell books door to door, and it was ninety hour work week six days a week and it was a hundred percent commission. Um, doesn't matter how good of a salesman you are if you're not knocking on doors, cold calling. And you either made money because you worked hard or you made zero money because you could be talented and feel good about yourself and never knock on a door. And there was nothing in between. 
And so a lot of hard lessons learned that summer in the <laughs> next, the next two summers, they did it for three summers. Um, so that was a, that, that, that is where I learned that particular lesson. Wow. But that yeah. is, I mean, for whatever it's worth, that's also, we literally tell our kids that almost every single day. That's, that's, that's amazing. Cool. Wow. It's a great lesson. Well, how can we stay connected with you, man? How can people find you uh, on your socials, websites, et cetera? Yeah. So, I mean, you can pick up the book ready or not on Amazon um, where 79% of all books are sold. That's right. crazy. This is called a monopoly people. That's right. um, you can uh, follow me on social. Uh, I'm on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Uh, it's at Doug Paul Jr. And then if you want to uh, see any of the videos that I've got, any free resources, got a, a couple of different eBooks and resources, you can go to DougPaul.org. Yeah. I'm not an org, but .com was not available. Uh, that is a radio personality, and I'm not him. Gotcha. Well, we've enjoyed this. Yeah. Um, wow, we've enjoyed it. And the book is Ready or Not, Kingdom Innovation. It is a worthwhile read. I, I am working my way through it. I wish I could say I finished it, but it is it is it has got a lot in it. Um, some great resources. There's an innovation laboratory that you guys run. Um, and he mentioned some free eBooks, which I've already downloaded one of those. It's got some great insights. If you're a leader, a pastor, in any capacity, you need to at least spend some time checking some of this yeah. out and engaging in this conversation um, because it's important. It's important to be thinking about how the church is going forward and what changes and innovations you're going to make to to lead it forward. Yeah. Thanks for being on the show, man. We've loved the conversation and I uh, look forward to talking more in the future. Yeah, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, and as we always say here at the Leadership Drip, you have a seat at the table. Thanks for coming on. Hey, friends, thanks for listening to this episode of the Leadership Drip. We loved having you at the table for this conversation. Would you do us a favor and comment, rate, subscribe, and share on your social media? That way we can get this content to other great leaders. And stay connected with us on Instagram at the Leadership Drip and on Twitter at Leadership Drip. And remember, you have a seat at the table.